Hey guys, Luke Mahalik here. Welcome to the DFD or Dairy Farming Discussions podcast. Here, we want to discuss all things dairy farming. This podcast is about getting information out that is going to help your dairy operations succeed. Our goal is to bring you timely information on beneficial topics. We plan to bring in some of the top names from the industry to share on the topics they have studied and more importantly, are passionate about sharing with you, the listeners. I hope everyone enjoys this week's episode and thanks for listening. Well, hello everybody out there in Dairyland. Uh, Keith Schweitzer back here on the DFD podcast. Today, uh, we're going to look at uh, this year's upcoming corn crop uh, and talk to Dr. Renato Schmidt from Lulliman Animal Nutrition about you know how we can set our corn crop up to make the best quality silage uh, possible. Uh, so Luke Mahalik, who is uh, usually leading the intro, uh, was away on holidays last week and he uh, was a little bit busy to record today. So I've uh, taken the helm on that and I have our special guest Hillary Prinzen from Prince Edward County on today. Hey, y'all. I want to say hi. Hi, pleasure to be here. Since we've got Dr. Schmidt on here, why don't we let you take it away here? Uh, and uh, can you maybe just fill us in a little bit of uh, what your role is with Lollaman, maybe some of your education and the background and where you're at right now? Thanks again for the, for the invitation. You know, it's a pleasure to chat a little, talk about the season, the corn silage. I've been with Lollaman for 12, 13 years already. I am tech support, tech service for the uh, forage inoculant. So anything that's really just silage that I can help with. I have a little appointment with R&D as well. I'm covering the whole North America. So I travel, depending on the year, go a little more just to Canada or to Mexico. As you can see on the accent, uh, I'm originally from Brazil. And I did my uh, bachelor's in a degree in agronomy. But then I always had like a little bit of a, you know, eye on the animal science department. So I, I did, I took my master's in animal science and then I came here to U.S. to do my PhD with uh, Dr. Liming Kang at the University of Delaware. And uh, I grew up on a dairy farm, you know, in pretty much early 80s. My dad, you know, he was just sick and tired of price and labor, you know, all those things that people know how it is. Then he changed to a beef operation. And we still have the, you know, the farm back at home and my brother who is a vet, he's still managing it. What, uh, what part of Brazil are you from? I know we have some Brazilian uh, descendants mm-hmm. here listening to the podcast. So, Yeah, I live in the southeastern part of Brazil in Sao Paulo state. So it's just where the largest city is, Sao Paulo. I'm about two hours north of that. Okay. And that's on the, that's on the Atlantic side, correct? Yes. I just have to test my grade nine geography there. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're doing good. We're actually, uh, Dr. Schmidt, we're fighting a little bit of butterfat issues here. And I know some colleagues of mine have been testing for some uh, yeast and, and uh, molds and things like that. So I was wondering if we could start off with that and maybe talk a little bit about uh, some of the crop characteristics that you're seeing from last year in your travels and some things that, that you may see have been affecting um, feed out quality through the summer and the, in the heat here. Yeah, unfortunately, with the, you know, with the whole pandemic, with the COVID situation, I'm not being able like to travel much now that we would see really, you know, a lot of the 2019 uh, crop being fed, especially the corn. I've been receiving a lot more on uh, feed analysis, like from different laboratories, and they asked me just to go over some numbers, uh, check especially the fermentation profile of those silages. And uh, I haven't seen 
a bunch of issues, at least on my experience right now, with uh, low butter, uh, not low butter fat, but also, you know, issues on the fiber digestibility or the amount of fiber. I've been actually hearing a little more in terms of low starch in some areas of the country. Last year, that was really, really hot, especially during the pollination phase that then you had less kernel. Also, we had all the issues with the, uh, with the, with the weather, uh, too much moisture throughout the season. So I'm seeing a little more issues in terms of when I look at the fermentation or the nutrient analysis on the starch amount and starch digestibility. But this is an important point that we always, you know, we have to remember how important it is to have a high quality silage. So is to have like a good amount of nutrients and a good digestibility of those nutrients. Always when we, you know, we, we have some issues with these, uh, the, you know, people like to call wild yeast, I like to call a little more like a spoiler yeast. When you have a high amount of these yeast, there's some classic uh, research that was done, you know, back in the days with uh, Dr. Keith Bolson group, with uh, Dr. Lee Kang as well, more recently. And we see that you have a large population or load of those yeasts. Then we start seeing some issues on the fiber digestibility and overall dry matter digestibility, just considering that it's, you know, it's a lower quality material. But on that study from uh, Dr. Bolson's group, we see that it was reported that the rumen, the mat on the top of the rumen was just destroyed. So it impacts directly the fiber digestibility. So is there anything we can do to kind of mitigate those effects uh, like on feed out now with the silage already being what it is? I think now the only, hmm, the only you know, alternative is to use a chemical additive, a type of a TMR saver or a chemical. is just something that will reduce or inhibit the yeast population, uh, I get asked if it would be worth to use an inoculant, even if you're moving silage from one silo to another. And this is something that we, we already had a fermentation in this situation. So the pH is already low. We don't have sugars for the actual fermentation or conversion of some particular acid that would inhibit the yeast and molds. So right now, it's more like monitor the situation, the temperature on the face, also in the feed bunk. And if you start seeing you know, heating or animals just like reduce dropping the intake, that's when you should add at least one of those type of additives. Yeah, that's a good point. I know with the heat, um, and, and I don't know if it's just the characteristics from the, our growing season last year, but we've been seeing a lot more uh, heating in TMRs this year, and especially in dry cow TMRs uh, that are, you know, kind of the Goldilocks base where we're, you know, it's corn silage and a little bit of haylage and lots of straw. And I didn't know if you had any, uh, any insight into that. I would say it's all based on the last year's season. That was, we had so much challenge. Uh, with the higher moisture too, I remember that a lot of people, they were having some issues during, uh, during harvest because they were bringing some, some of the soil to the silo. Sometimes I see they would harvest on the field. Then there was another wagon waiting by the road so they would not bring the soil onto the road and, of course, in the silo either. But it was just, it was just like a big challenge because you are bringing some of the soil. That's something, in fact, that I've been noticing more ash on the feed analysis so pretty much we have more soil contamination than we burn and we're gonna have a lot more minerals so then the level of ash is higher on the samples and this is another way to see would be the uh, level the contents of fiber so the ndf 
we can compare the one that's done traditionally or the one that's burned afterwards, that's the organic matter. So then by difference, if it's a little higher than like 1.5 percentiles, then it's another indicative that there was uh, soil contamination. When we're bringing all these foreign particles, you know, first we bring soil, it's a material that's going to increase the buffering capacity. So the buffering capacity, it's just a measure that says how hard it is for you to change the pH in terms of acidity or going more basic. If you're increasing this capacity of holding the pH, then during the fermentation, what happens is that the bacteria, they need to produce more acid to have a drop on the pH. So it's just something that is holding that pH high, even though you know, the bacteria is producing more acid. So that's the first issue. You're keeping that pH high or near neutral, that's the fresh forest pH, longer than you need. And then you're just giving more opportunity for these undesirable microbes that will be degrading some of the nutrients, using some of the dry matter, producing heat early in the process of ensiling during the active fermentation. So we just wanted that really effective, fast fermentation just to shut down all these microbes. And then if the pH is just kept you know, high more than usual, we're just giving more opportunity to, to those bugs. Uh, another point, it's uh, the soil particles. They harbor you know, a bunch of undesirable microbes such as spoilage yeast, molds, Clostridia spores, enterobacteria. So all these microorganisms, they are nothing good in terms of ensiling. So you're just bringing more of a load of these microbes. You know, we usually say the silage fermentation is a microbial war. We have all these, you know, bad microbes, but then we also bring the good microbes with the plant. So we bring the lactic acid bacteria that we want them to dominate and dictate the whole process. Now, if you're just bringing more and more of those bad guys, it just makes things, you know, more difficult. So you have first the pH that's kept high, a little longer, then you have more of these undesirable microbes that can come with soil. And that's one of the points that's important to use a microbial inoculant. Then you're just adding the beneficial microbes instead of bringing higher load of the undesirable ones. And finally, when we think of soil, you know, soil is dirt. <laughs> Dirt's, dirt's not a nutrient. So when we look at the ash that's one percentile higher than it should be, when we think of the internal level of ash in the plants, one percentile higher could be equivalent to 20 pounds of soil per ton. And I've seen something that's over like 10 points higher than what should be. So just, just to have an idea how much of foreign material we're bringing in, how much challenge we're bringing to the fermentation, all these undesirable microbes, and you know, the dirt's not going to make meat or milk yeah, I know. And I actually seen that in a, uh, in a sorghum sedan sample this spring. And I just said like the, the numbers on paper, the fiber and everything looked okay. But then you looked at the energy and it, there was nothing hardly in it. And mm -hmm. we looked in the ash was like 16 and a half percent. I was like, was it a little muddy when you did it? He goes, yeah, I wondered <laughs> if you wouldn't see that in, in the analysis when we got it back. So, you know, it's just a, matter and i know in wisconsin i was in wisconsin in uh i think like february early march and you could see all the corn silage fields were all tracked up like you could tell that they had a very challenging is the high ash content that you've seen in some of the corn silage is that going to influence the shelf life or stability of the silage it could it's i don't see a lot more like in a corn analysis recently i've seen like some other cross especially haylage 
you know, you see the levels of soil a lot higher or ash, but then you're bringing more of these, you know, foreign material, you're bringing more of the undesirable microbes, and you just have, for example, instead of 100,000 colony farm units of spoilage yeast or molds, you're bringing a million or 10 million. So you have that big problem at the beginning, you go through the fermentation, everything's okay, but then when you open the silo, what happens? You get the oxygen in and the yeast, they get back to become active. And instead of that 100,000 CFU issue, you have to deal with, I don't know, a million, 10 million, <laughs> even, you know, sky's the limit, how much of uh, foreign material or contamination producers bring it from the, soil, uh, from the field. I've been getting some questions because of the, uh, just some of the storms that went through the part of the, the Midwest here, especially in Iowa. And we're seeing all this corn that was like lodged like the whole field, everything is just lodged. And, you know, people are like, well, what should I expect? What should I do? You're going to have to figure out some way to pick up that stuff, a particular habit for the combine or, you know, or just go with a, or with a disc and, and try to pick up with a hay, like as a hay. But uh, you're, anyways, you're, one, you're, you're bringing more contamination. You have to see how the material is, like scout the field and see how the plants are. If some are really, you know, already dead or start to decay, or if the moisture is really high, if the corn was immature. So you have to think of, you know, all these different uh, items. And most importantly, you know, analyze what the situation is. You know what's coming into the silo and try to do your best. But then you start with the material that's kind of like compromised, then, you know, the silo is not going to be much better. Yeah, that's a good point. And I mean, as producers, you have to kind of deal with the hand that you're dealt with. And uh, unfortunately for some of those in the Midwest there, that's, you know, it's it really unfortunate, uh, the growing season that they've had down there. But to kind of segue into what's going on here in Ontario, uh, this year's crop, we have a lot of different kind of microclimates, it almost seems like in Ontario this year. We've got areas where they've had adequate rainfall. We've had uh, areas where there's been severe drought stress. Most of the crops went in uh, in the spring and in early May and uh, looked real good, but then kind of ran out of gas with uh, not having enough moisture through the summer. So uh, what are some of the things we can expect with some of this more drought-stressed uh, corn? Uh, with the drought-stressed corn, I think it's important, one, always to, again, you know, to monitor the field and scout and check the plants and always monitor the dry matter content of the plants. You know, they're like on a different stress. So sometimes we look at the plant and they look at the leaves, they seem to be all dried and you think, oh, you know, I just need to go and harvest but there's still a lot of moisture inside of the stalks. So one thing is, you know, to pay attention to that. We should expect a lower yield as well. You know, this is just something that we cannot, you know, do much about it. Uh, depending how bad it affects during pollination, you're going to have low starch content. And having a lower starch content, it means that a lot of the soluble carbohydrates or the soluble sugars, they were not converted to starch. So the plant will have you know, plenty of sugars. It's not going to be an issue for the insulin fermentation. But then in terms of energy value for as a feed, then you're going to have a lower value just because of the low starch content. Just proportionally, we see a little more on the protein side, also on the uh, fiber. 
I've been hearing some, you know, some people say one thing and then they say another one in terms of the digestibility of the fiber, that it's growing a little too slow and the metabolism is low, so the fiber is a little digestible, more digestible. Then on the other hand, you have like short internodes and you have more of lignin in some parts. So I, I, I don't have like a, a, a solid background on the fiber digestibility, but we should see more fiber uh, anyways. And there is always, you know, when you talk about drought stress forage, there is always the concern with the, uh, with the nitrates. So the nitrates, they'll be in the soil, they'll be more like accumulated, you know, more on like on the surface. And it's just a matter that we don't have enough moisture. So the plant is not just, you know, getting all the nutrients with the evapotranspiration and pulling down from the soil. And uh, when we see that, this, we have to be ex uh, especially careful if there is a rain just, you know, days or a few days before you're planning on harvest. Because suddenly we have all that moisture on the soil and then the plant, they will start to just like sucking up, you know, pretty much everything with the nitrates included. And they will start to just accumulate, of course, on the bottom part of the plant. And it's just a matter, you know, in the end of the day that the plant cannot convert those nitrates in uh, proteins at the leaf tissue. And that's, you know, another thing that when we think about the nitrate, it's uh, if you have physical damage or hail or something that the leaf area, it's smaller than it should do. You have like less area for this conversion from the nitrates to the proteins. And uh, when we think of, okay, uh, what type of uh, management options I have in this case, well, we can always, you know, do the high chop. And this goes, you know, this could be like a, <laughs> another whole podcast on, on, on how much you can <laughs> impact, you know, how much you leave the nitrates in the field. You leave also, you know, a bunch of the moisture that's, you know, accumulates on the bottom. So if you think of, you know, you raise like one foot, on the cutting bar, you should like increase the uh, dry matter level in about, you know, two, three, four points maybe, but at the same time you reduce the yield. So then you have to think, okay, what's my, what's my inventory? Can I afford this? Is it an advantage to bring, you know, to go a little more on the high cut and bring that high nutrient value corn and you have more milk per ton? Or, you know, you really concerned about the milk per acre side. But still, you go like one foot higher, the drop on the, on the yield overall is about 15%. But anyways, back to, the, back to the nitrate. So this is one of the uh, options. You can just go a little higher on the cutting bar and you leave most of the nitrates, you know, the, the amount that you see on the leaves or on the, uh, the cob, they are very, on the year, they are very small compared to the stock. And on the top third or even like on the on the top two thirds of the plant you know it's not really much of concern but then when you look at the bottom third that's when you know it's really high and you have to be careful so going a little higher is one option then always you can always you know sample the material if you have a suspicion you can always like send you a lab it's a very simple and expensive analysis just to be on the safe side you can do that just to see how it is and what type of challenge you might have to face when you open the silo also the ensiling process the silo process reduce the level of nitrates to about 40 percent wow so then it's yeah that's something that you always keep in mind like oh i i I brought all this corn or even, you know, when we think of other challenging uh, forage crops like sorghum and I think the nitrate is really high. So we can always, you know, do that initial test 
then it's going through fermentation, it's going to be reduced. And during feed out, you can always, you know, run another test to see if the situation remains a problem uh, or not. What's the timeline for how long it would take for those nitrates to ferment out of the silage? I would say just that initial phase of the active fermentation, that's when you see most of them already converted. You know, it's not something when we, for example, we think of uh, starch stability that will take months to see an increase. But that's normally when you start seeing, you know, activity like really, really early in the process by uh, enterobacteria that they're not the desirable ones, but they're always there. They're always going to make a part of this process. And there are some key players doing this process on the production reduction of nitrates. And that's during that initial week or 10 days that we see some of the uh, silo gas, some of the nitrous oxide, that also it's part of this whole, you know, process with the nitrogen fractions. So it's, I would say, like, it's right in the beginning, like in the initial, you know, two or three weeks, you should be at least on this part, you know, most of this conversion, it must be done already. And that's another, you know, another point that I just mentioned that's really important to be careful you know, not only the safety as a whole, but when we think of these silo gas, that they are really dangerous and nasty. We should always, you know, be careful in the initial week or 10 days. That's when they are most higher. Will the nitrates have an effect on, on like the hydrogen sulfide or the gas off when the crop is fermenting? Well, as I said, you, it will be part of the fermentation. Like one of the initial microbes that will start this process will be the enterobacteria. Then the lactic acid bacteria takes over them. They're a little more sensitive on pH, and they will be the ones that will be working on, you know, on this process of the of the uptaking the nitrates and producing some of of the gases. They, you know, even though we try to inhibit them as much as you know possible, they're still uh, active part during this process on the degradation of the conversion and production of the uh, uh, nitrous oxide. Okay. Let's shift gears a little bit here. We've been talking about kind of some of the characteristics of the corn growing and some things like that. Let's talk a little bit about storage systems. So I know the age-old question that myself or Hillary always get is, you know, what's the proper moisture? What should it be? You know, I'm going to put the silage into a bunker. I'm going to put it into a pile. It'll be into a sealed silo. Can you maybe touch on some of the different uh, moisture, dry matters that we'd want to ensile some of these uh, corn silages at? Yeah, I think they are... uh... Yeah, when we talk about corn silage, it's some things that are so uh, nice and consistent. I know corn silage, we have one shot, you have to, you know, a year, have to do a really good job, but it's such a, I, I really like corn silage, such consistency and a nice forage. Uh, when you think of uh, the storage structures, you know, you think of uh, bags or bunkers, piles, I still go on that, you know, the, the regular, I would say 32, 33, up to 37, maybe 38% of dry matter. You know, it's, I don't see much of an issue if it's a bunker, if it's a pile or, or a beggar. You know, you start going a little lower than that, then not only you start bringing more moisture, we start, you know, seeing more of that seepage, but then you also have a lower content of starch. So it's not only that issue with, uh, with the loss of uh, dry matter, some of the soluble nutrients, contamination of, you know, underground water or anything, smell, but also on the nutrient side, you have less starch. Now, if you start going above that 37, 38%, you're going to have like plenty of starch technically, but then it starts being less digestible just because the kernel is harder and you start, you know, seeing more and more of that matrix that starch forms with uh, some of the uh, protein in the kernel, the prolamine. But then when we think of some of the uh, 
tower silos. Then we, you know, we go like more, uh, you know, on the dry side, of course. We start something around, I don't know, the same 30, 33, 37, depends how high the, the, the silo is, up to 60 feet or so. And then for every other 10 feet, I would say, you can increase the dry matter by a couple of points. So then you start to just, you know, because you have all that pressure from the tower, you know, pushing the material, you start having more chance to see the seepage. So you go a little more on the dry side. So up to like 50, 60 feet, if I, I, I still like okay with that recommended, you know, the typical recommended dry matter range. Now, if you start going above that height, you know, every 10 feet, you start just going on the dry side for a couple of points. Now, does the, does the moisture of the corn silage for producers that are putting inoculant on the silage, is the inoculant as effective if used on an excessively wet or dry crop? If we're talking about like a water soluble, we call the water soluble uh, products that they're just, you know, not, not really technically soluble, but they're in suspension in the water. So then I have no problem. That's why, you know, we use some materials like uh, even snappleage, earlage, high moisture corn that we have so little of moisture. Now, if it's a dry granular formulation, then when you start going above like 40, 40, well, I'm thinking of haylage, but we start going a little more on the dry side on 30 or yeah, 38, 40%, you know, it, the inoculant will need to get moisture from the forest particles for the bacteria to revive and start to become active. So on the water-soluble uh, formulations, we just mix in the tank. Normally, one of the ingredients is sucrose, so they start to like become actively uh, metabolic, so they're pretty much like ready to go. As soon as we apply, they start to colonize in the plant and do their thing. Now, I would say that the type of inoculant is something that we have to pay attention to if the material, if the corn is more on the wet side or more on the on the on the dry side and, and of course depending on the history of the uh, of the operation of the dairy or the yard you know whatever the people will will use so for all the materials that are a little more on the wet side i recommend just like the basic traditional inoculants expand on what we're looking for in these inoculants like uh -huh. specific ingredients yes these products they contain uh, strains of lactic acid bacteria they are homofermentative or homolactic so what it means they only produce lactic acid from the simple sugars why is lactic acid so important well first of all this conversion of the sugars to lactic acid it's pretty much straight in terms of number of carbons so we think of glucose, fructose of six carbons, and the lactic acid has three. So one molecule of sugar produces two molecules of the lactic acid. So it's a straight conversion, no loss of dry matter in theory. And the lactic acid, it's a very strong acid. So we produce that strong acid that's you know about eight, nine times stronger than acetic acid and propionic acid, etc we'll see that sharp drop on pH that we want so much in the beginning just to pickle everything. So, the, you know, that's why it's based of all types of, you know, fermentation, especially, you know, stuff that we, we do like pickle, sauerkraut, you know, we always think of that, you know, lactic fermentation. And in this type of materials that we have more moisture, we also have to think about of that dilution factor. So the bacteria, they need to produce more acid to 
pickle everything and drop the pH to make everything nice and stable. You know, it's like you have a cup of water or you have a pitcher of water and you squeeze like half a, a lime in the cup or half a lime on the pitcher. So in the cup, you kind of have like a, you know, reasonable lemonade, but the pitcher, you know, you barely taste the, the lemon. So it's the same with the acid. You have a lot, of mo a lot more moisture on that forage mass, so the bacteria, they need to produce more acid. And this is the most efficient process. So that's why when they say, oh, it's going to be a little on the wet side, traditional homolytic product. So those are the best. You can always use this type of product. You can always make a good fermentation better. You can always save more on the dry matter and on the nutrients. Now, when we start going a little more on the dry side, then we start having some issues, you know, some more challenges, I would say, with this uh, dry material in terms of packing density. You know, it's that a lot harder to pack. You know, we go the packing tractor, it goes down and then, you know, fluffs back up. So we're <laughs> going to see a lot more of that porosity, you know, a lot of more space between the particles. And you have more of that trapped or air. And in this case, we start thinking of a material that will be also more challenging during the feed out. Just because we open the silo and the air will penetrate the face a lot easier than one that's with a high packing density. So in this type of uh, challenge, then we switch to an inoculant that it's based on particular bacteria that's called Lactobacillus buchneri. So what's unique about this Lactobacillus buchneri is that it converts, after that phase of fermentation, active fermentation, it converts some small amounts of lactic acid to acetic acid. And the acetic acid works, you know, just like propass with the weak acid theory. So it's, it works exactly the same. But, in, but then in this case, instead of, you know, you see some issue, then you have to run and try to find a chemical additive that's going to be not as easy to, to handle, it will be more expensive. We can just add the inoculant in the beginning of the whole process. So the Buchnerai, it's, uh, you know, a specific product. It should be applied at a higher dose than these, you know, the traditional inoculants for the front end, we call for the active fermentation. So the traditional inoculants, we recommend an application rate of 100,000 CFUs or colony forming units per gram of forage. And just with the Buchnerai itself, we recommend 400,000. So it's four times more on the bacterial load than the traditional inoculant. You know, it's, it's just because it's uh, it's just not as easy as, as a process to produce that lactic acid to acidic. You know, this is already during the storage phase. In the beginning of the process, we have near neutral pH. We have a lot of sugar. So these bacteria, you know, they, they, they have everything they need. So they're just going to use the sugars, produce acid, and that's it. Now, the Buchneri, you know, when starts doing this particular conversion, the pH is low, residual sugars are very little, and there's a bunch of lactic acid. So I, I see more like a, a survival strategy, really, that they're converting a little of the lactic to acidic. The pH goes up a little bit, but the acetic acid has really strong antifungal properties. So I would recommend in terms of you have some, you know, challenge you're bringing a contaminated material or it was something that was drought stressed or you're going to move from one silo to another the face is too wide it's just something that will lead to these challenges during feed out that could impact the silage aerobic stability or the tmr stability then i recommend the uh the buchnerite product it's kind of like an insurance on your corn silage yeah and i i i see you know using the inoculant as 
an insurance that you're always going to use a little, you know, you buy insurance for, you know, for the house or, or some of the insurance and you end up never using. But then once you're, you know, you're adding the beneficial bacteria, you can always make that process, you know, better. So this is, you know, it's important to mention that this is one of the tools that you can use. You know, you have to think of every single step of this process, the moisture level, the stage of maturity, chop length, kernel processing, packing, you know, feed out uh, management, covering, all those points, all those steps are really important. And the inoculant is one of them. I received a phone call recently from a distributor and uh, she was, you know, we were talking and she said, yeah, I need some type of a number or a document that says how dry I can go on my corn when I apply an inoculant and I should see a response. And I, I mentioned, I was like, well, you always can think of, start going really dry. You always, you know, you think of a snapillage or earlage or high moisture corn. And we have a lot of challenge in terms of low moisture and still we use a product and we see a result. And then she said, yeah, I know, I just don't want somebody call me and said that, hey, my material was really, really dry. I used the inoculant and it didn't turn out good. I was like, okay, but it didn't start good either. So, you know, you have, you have to realize that, you know, it didn't start like with the best material ever. It's something that will help, but it's not a miracle solution. I remember uh, Dr. Bolson telling us back at a meeting is that uh, you can't, turn a sow's ear into a silk's purse. So if you're putting if you're uh putting some rougher stuff in, you're not going to get the highest quality stuff out. No, and it's you know, we hear some people saying that, oh no, I I, I know somebody that was selling uh additive or something that will, you know, make a miracle of my low quality forage that was in silo and that's not how it works. Oh you mentioned Dr. Bolson and oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> he'll be missed. I, I, I really Definitely. enjoy talking to him. So let's get back and talk about some things that uh, producers can do when putting up the silage. So one of the questions that I get uh, asked a lot is about chop length. Like what's the what's the proper chop length to kind of maximize your corn silage? And does that change year to year? Yeah, just like you know like everything you have all these you know general guidelines you know you always have to see what the particularities of that operation of that dairy the type of equipment so I, I i think it's really important to talk to the equipment dealer to know exactly how the the machine goes or just talk to if there's a custom harvester how you know you get the best generally if it's not going to be processed, which I think everybody's processing kernels right now, but just people that are not processing, I think it would be around three-eighths of an inch. So at this point, you know, you start trying to hit all the, you know, the cobs and the kernels just to break, break everything. But at the same time, you're also reducing the uh, particle length. So that's something that, you know, we have to keep in mind that you start reducing the effective fiber. You know, normally if you have a harvester with the kernel processing on, then just on average, say, three quarter of an inch that would be pretty much the usual depending on these new types of uh, processors maybe we can extend gold like to a full inch you know it, it, again it depends on the material it depends also on the dry matter you start going a little on the dry side then you probably will have to 
you know, reduce the chop length a little just to have like a better packing. And that's when you start, you know, you start just going on challenge. Then you have to pick your battles. It's like, okay, what's important? To, I'm a little on the dry side to reduce my chop length, try to, curn, to crank those, you know, processors. But then I'm going to have to think about my effective fiber during feed out. Now, there are still a few producers that don't have processors on the harvesters. What would be the payback on adding a processor? Would they see the returns that year? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got to be careful to talk about numbers. Uh, I know it's, it's, it would be, you, you see the return, that's for sure. If you harvest at a la, more immature, at a higher moisture, then, you know, below like 32, 31%. Uh, I've seen a meta-analysis that was published from a range shavers lab, and you don't see an effect. Ideally, when we get to that perfect, you know, between 32 to 37, 38, that's when you get the most on the start digestibility. So I would say it's a worth investment. You just try to get the most nutrients out of that corn silage. You're not going to have to worry about, you know, have to get more energy from a concentrate or grain or try to see what's available. But then if it's a little, you know, start to go in like to 39, 40 and higher, you would see some uh, effect on the process, on the kernel processing, but it's more like numerical difference, not statistical. So even if you, you know, you crank those rolls, you put like a millimeter, you try to, you know, make them really tight. There's just so much you're going to get from that material. So I would, I would say like it's a worth investment. I cannot tell how much, you know, it would take to pay the investment or if it's like right away. But if it's like, should be a yes or no to put a processor or use a kernel processing, I would say, you know, definitely yes. Good. Uh, <laughs> so what are, what are the goals for kernel processing? How pulverized should the corn kernels be? And, and why is kernel processing important? I think we should see at the time of harvest, ideally, you're not going to see a whole kernel. So that, you know, in the end of the day, in the end of the day, on a perfect world, you'd like to see like no whole kernels. So if you have like a, you know, a pail, a 20 liter pail or something that you grab a couple of handfuls of that chopped corn and you just mix, you wait a little. So the plant particles, they will be, you know, floating. You can just scoop that stuff and you dump the water and basically you just have the kernels on the bottom. So then it's, it's, it's a subjective, but it's kind of like a quick way just to get rid of all the leaves and all the other particles. And you're just looking, you know, at kernels. So this is something that, you know, it can be done. Also, a lot of people, they, you know, they have that 32 ounce, you know, cup that you just scoop the cup and you dump on the, on the ground or on some plastic sheet or, or tarp and you try to find a whole kernel. So this one you can use, you know, when the corn's fresh and when it's a red silage. The one that it's uh, with the water bucket, it works better just on, on the fresh corn, not much on silage. So, I, you know, ideally you try to not find any whole kernel. So some of the cups that you see, they have these like, oh, if you find one kernel, it's okay. If it's two and three, it's not really, you know, optimum. But if it's more than four, then you, you need to do something about it. But then, you know, ideally, if you don't see any, any kernels, that's what you're looking for. Then uh, when you open the silo that you want to see, you know, a better idea how the processing is. Because, you're, you know, now you're feeding the animals. I mean, you, it could be done during harvest, but definitely during feed out. Then you can either do that, you know, the easy test with the cup. Just try to count and see how many kernels you see. Or you can also send to the lab and do uh, analysis 
on the starch that will be a bunch of different like sieves and they start just shaking and you see how much starch goes through and you want to be above 70% of starch that goes through one of the sieves. So when it comes from the, from the lab, you try to be above that 70%. And I think there is, there is one, uh, uh, one app from the University of Wisconsin from the engineering guys. I think a silage snap or something like this. But then it's a little more elaborate. You, you have to put a black sheet or something dark and put each individual fraction of the kernel, you know, just spread throughout the sheet. And you take a picture and it gives you exactly, you know, the amount and the size of each one of these uh, kernels or pieces, if you will. Yeah, I know our local lab here, uh, we do a lot with uh, Cumberland. They uh, actually have a really nice report on kernel processing score that I've used in the past. And also, the other thing too is uh, through feed out, we can do a fecal starch on it as well. And then you can kind of go mm-hmm. and determine, you know, whether that's the form of your grain corn or is that the form, you know, is that starch coming through in a poorly processed corn silage so i know back earlier you had mentioned uh you can make a whole podcast about uh the high chop or low chop but seeing uh we're kind of coming into silage season here now like what is there a timing like a, a year that you would low chop versus high chop is are you looking at the corn crop you know do we get a real tall corn is it more advantageous to chop a little bit higher you know if we got a little bit shorter corn should we chop lower like what are your thoughts on that i think from what i've seen i remember in 2018 i mean 2019 the inventories were kind of low due to the previous season and then we have the 2019 season that was even worse that's why you know you look at some of these technical magazines you see a bunch of articles on alternative crops so what can I, you know, what can I use? What else is my option? Because I didn't have a good season. My inventories are low. Considering that, I'm expecting that a lot of people will try to go for more like overall tons this year, just to get more on the inventory overall. That's what my guess would be based on the, you know, previous two years. Going, you know, a little higher or a little short, I think at one side could be a decision from the owner of the dairy or you know the property depending on the type of animals how much feed and what type of feed they need if they need more on the nutrient you know having more like on the nutrient side rather than uh, the tonnage so they can kind of like decide where to go and try to predict okay how much i will need in the future can i afford to leave you know a little more in the field so i'm not going to have concern with with the nitrates i'll bring the forage a little more on the dry side i'll have a better more like residue on the soil for soil health and covered this is more like up to the uh, producer or the manager to try to figure out but then sometimes you know how depending the type of operation and you set up with the custom harvester and suddenly you know they are there and they are you know they're ready to go (laughs) that's it if you're a little on the you know more on the wet side then it's kind of like a management tool it's like okay maybe you can go a little higher just to leave more of that moisture in the field and you can work a little more you know that material on the dry side or closer to the ideal if you will so one one i think you can really like plan or try to plan according to the needs on that particular property. And sometimes it's just that how everything turned out, you have somebody that's like ready to chop and it's a little immature, but then it's like, well, we do it now or come back. I don't know when, how many, you know, days or weeks later. 
then you can always, you know, try to manage, go a little higher and just be a little more within that recommended range of uh, moisture. Well, I guess kind of expanding on that question, if you're cutting a little bit higher, you're getting these plants drier, it's, it's going to affect how well that corn silage packs into the bunk or the bag. What kind of packing densities should we be aiming for? Normally about 15 pounds per cubic feet on a dry matter basis. Now as a fresh density or bulk density they call about 44 pounds per cubic feet. So those are kind of like the minimum that we should be aiming for a good density or packing density. And you know, it's it's going to be a factor of uh, the moisture that you're bringing the, you know, the foraging or the time that somebody will be packing, how much weight you'll be packing, the layer thickness. There is like a really, really nice spreadsheet at the University of Wisconsin Extension Service that you can just predict and add all these different parameters okay, this is the weight of my packing tractor or tractors. This is the layer thickness. This is a dry matter. You know, you have all those different numbers to populate in the cells. And then it predicts what the uh, packing density would be. And it's really interesting because you start changing like six inch to nine and you change the packing tractor weight a little less. And there's like this huge drop on the packing density. So it, it's nice just to have an idea that sometimes what we think it's like a little detail we have a big impact in the end. Yeah, and I know from our end too, with inventory restrictions and maybe your storage system, I know that you know if you have your density a bit higher or a bit lower, that's going to really affect on how much uh, feed you're going to be carrying into the winter. So is there an advantage to packing more? And maybe what are some of the problems that you could see from you know not having enough density in the corn silage? Well, I think packing more is it's pretty much just advantages because you know you get rid of the trapped air. You f- you can have more like a volume of feed per footprint so a lot of people they are like oh i don't have space i don't have space but then you you pack more tight then of course you're gonna have less of a volume required for that or space for that volume or that mass then uh if it's not really you know well packed then you have you know the issues during early siling because there's still plant respiration the plant is still alive the particles are still respiring and that's you know what starts actually the process of protein breakdown during siling. Then you have like microbe activity early during the uh, during this process. Also, when you open the silo, then you start having more issues with aerobic stability, with air penetrating the face. Uh, I think even on the safety standpoint, if something that is not really well packed or well built, you start having more issues with avalanche and all those type of the safety things that, you know, we, we've been pretty vocal about actually. Safety is one of those things that I think, you know, we take for granted sometimes. And I know I myself have uh, known people that have been caught on bunk faces and things like that. And it's just, it's a real uh, tragedy when we hear about these farm accidents in the countryside and, and they can be very uh, avoidable by, you know, certain with certain management practices. I'm just looking at the time here and uh, I had one more question about shrink, mm-hmm. but I think that's a, uh, that in itself could be a whole other podcast, but what are maybe one or two things that we could do, um, you know, getting the, the silage covered and, and things like that, that we could do to kind of help prevent or kind of mitigate our losses from shrink? Like I said, it's it's every you know single step of this process. It's important. You know, we think of corn, and it's it's just nice that the maturity goes along with the dry matter content for the ensiling. 
So I, you know, the sweet spot at 20, the 34, 35% dry matter, you get great starch content, digestibility, fiber, you know, all the nutrients all together. Physically, it's not going to be an issue to have it well packed. So then it's try to harvest fast, but not too fast. You know, you need, <laughs> you need to pack it well. You know, you try to be efficient, but not just, you know, bringing like load after load after load. So you have to be efficient on the packing, have the adequate weight. One really easy calculation is they call the 800 rule. So for each ton that you're bringing from the field, you should have 800 pounds packing it. So if you're bringing like 100 tons or an hour, just to make life easier, you need 80,000 pounds of packing weight on the tractor. Then, you know, cover as, as fast as possible, tight, overlap, heavy on the edges. I still go in the country and I see Files that are not covered, it's just it just breaks my heart. It's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> and it's exactly where it's most exposed to air, you know, where you have most of area. Then using, of course, using a, a research-proof additive, you know, something that not somebody is just showing up and say, oh, hey, I got this product and this is a miracle and it's cheap and it's wonderful. So always ask for some research data to some, you know, information about the manufacturer, the viability, all those things are important. You want to make sure that you apply the specific microbes or ingredients or enzymes if they're in formulation. There is like a, a, a guarantee and they are alive. So it's important just to apply everything, you know, as they should. And, uh, and during feed out as well, just, you know, try to get ahead of the oxygen, just managing the phase, the feed out rate faster. Try to go at least like six inch, you know, more if it's hot weather or if you start seeing some uh, issues with the heating. And basically, it's just try to make all this process, you know, more efficient. And each one of those steps are important. You know, if you're, oh, I start with a really mature material, or I started with something that's a little more on the wet side, I didn't pack it well. So when you have like a drop on each one of these, you're going to have a big impact in the end. Yeah, and I know it's one of those things that uh, shrink is, it's sometimes it's hard to measure, sometimes it's not, but it's one of those things that's, you know, really hard on a dairy producer or, or a livestock producer's uh, bottom line. Yeah, one well, no, just just not that you mentioned, just like quick something that I start like working with that's kind of new. I mean, start with the old. It's you know you can see like the tons in, tons out. You know, sometimes you can have an idea what the shrink is. But I've, we've been like collaborating with some uh, company that uses drone to check inventories. So they do this reading with the drones and take pictures, and you see not only like the whole area, and this is like on a centimeter level. This is really accurate. So you can still see how much of the volume it's gone in terms of space in the pile and how many tons you know were fed and also you see the slope of the piles if they're on the safe side so this is a really interesting technology and it's you know it, i think it's something that's gonna be a must like in the future yeah it's amazing like i i'm not uh, too familiar with some of that stuff yet but i know uh with some of the agronomy companies here in Ontario, there's a lot more drones being used to look at crop stands and nutrient deficiencies and things like that. And it's just a matter of time before a lot of these things are going to filter over into livestock production. You know, that's why uh, that's what uh, we were talking with with the you know the person with the drone and the owner of the farm, and he said, you know, we're just looking at my silage, but the you know the sky's the limit. We can do some check the crops and see if you know everything that's possible. The drone they're going to be using now. So we're at the part of the podcast, which is my favorite. So, um, Dr. Schmidt, we ask uh, 
producers and our colleagues a lot of questions and we we tell them about the guests that we have coming on and so we always get some questions from the crowd to get answered so hillary uh would you mind uh starting us off with that one i know this first question on the list here is yours yeah for sure so one of my customers had asked how do we price standing corn that might not make great quality grain. So we have had severe drought stress in many parts of Ontario. There's a lot of grain corn that's not putting on a cob. Producers are looking at buying that standing corn and taking it off as corn silage. How do we put a value on that corn? I think on average, we would say normally what like eight times the price of the corn grain. That would be kind of like the standard. But then uh, I know there are some uh, calculators available you know, again, at the University of Wisconsin uh, Extension Service. And I think you need like, you know, a feed analysis because you need to see, okay, what starch content on that corn silage, you know, how much I can be paying if it's too much or not enough. Uh, there are other calculators that then you start being really specific and you see how much on the nutrient removal and how much that translates in terms of fertilizer. But I, you know, one thing is, Maybe just to have like a feed analysis, just to see exactly what the person is selling or buying. But then on the other hand, it's demand and supply, you know. <laughs> if somebody doesn't have and it's just like, okay, this is my only option, there's not much you can do. That's a tough one there. I know, uh, mm -hmm. unfortunately, some of the grain growers are in tough situation, but if we can make some high quality cow chow out of it. I mean, that's an advantage to the dairy producer or the beef producer. Uh, I know you had mentioned there before we had got on that uh, you're situated in Milwaukee in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. So I know our climates are a little bit different, but we kind of make the joke, whatever happens in Wisconsin happens two days later in Ontario. In your opinion, what are the risks of toxins, you know, primarily vomitoxin and that? I haven't heard a whole lot about, you know, issues. I heard more like concerns from last year. But uh, this year, you know, this, this season overall, especially here in, uh, in the Midwest, in Wisconsin, has been done like pretty well, actually, you know, a little, a little on the dry side on some parts. But here in Wisconsin, it looks, it looks pretty good, actually. N nothing really major, you know, to be honest, that it's something, it, each one of them, it's, it's, it raises a, a concern that, you know, we should be paying attention for the next year. Now, even if we're not seeing any toxin pressure, there are uh, a, a host of other diseases. I've been walking a couple fields and I've seen a lot of birds damage. Um, and then we had one producer who's seen some Japanese beetle pressure in their corn. Uh, just eating some of the tips off the cob. Is there anything uh, maybe that specific producer could do now to help lessen the damage of the Japanese beetles? I think uh, I'm thinking more in terms of contamination with molds. I would say, you know, you try to get that stuff out rather sooner than later because you have some of that material, you have that part of entrance for all those, you know, molds and other pathogens. And the longer you wait in the field, they're just going to be more and more active. They will start degrading the whole, you know, the year or part of the plant. And also you have more of just chance for them to produce mycotoxins. Uh, I participated when I was in grad school and I studied when I was in Delaware that we damaged some of the corn ears. And we had some that were not damaged as a positive, uh, negative control. And some that were damaged, we did uh, nine days and almost a month prior to harvest, 
And we could see that just leaving that material exposed, you know, there was a small increase on mycotoxins in general. I think it was uh, doxyvalinol, fumonizine, and uh, zirelanone, if I'm not mistaken. It's uh, published uh, in a manuscript already. Those that were damaged nine days or so prior to harvest, you could see a small increase on those mycotoxins. But when you had this damage almost like a month prior to harvest, they had this all high levels of mycotoxins, you know, the fumonizine, the vomitoxin, or the uh, zirelanone. So in this situation that you start having some issues with some uh, insects or, or some particular uh, pests, it's always, again, important to scout the field, look at the plants, and what type of challenge, if you can wait, you know, start getting more on the 34, 35% dry matter, or when you get to that low 30s, it's kind of like, hey, it's time to go. Otherwise, we start getting more and more infected. So is that maybe at a time then you might jump ahead and get in that field maybe a little bit prematurely just to kind of mitigate crop damage? Yeah, depending how, how bad it is. You know, if you, if you just have all that, you know, either like a near or a leaf material that it's damaged and exposed, and they will get infected, it's just a matter of time. But then, you know, if you start looking and you see that it's getting like really, really bad, it's just a strategy just to get them out of the field. And then by ensiling, you're going to get rid of the oxygen and drop the pH just to inhibit uh, the mode activity. Yeah. And most of these, you know, that I mentioned, those are like mycotoxins that are produced in the field. So they're, you know, you bring with the plant. There are some others that we see that may be produced during, the, uh, during storage but those that are in-field produced. I think that's a good spot to call the podcast here. I, I just wanted to thank you, uh, Dr. Schmidt, on, on coming on and teaching us about uh, you know what we can do to kind of set our producers up for the most amount of success with their corn crop this year. I know the, the growing conditions there in Wisconsin are a little bit different than kind of what we're experiencing here in Ontario, but I mean, there's still just a lot of information that can be mm-hmm. translated from uh, growers all over, I guess, North America. So we really appreciate you coming on the podcast and helping educate some of our producers was there anything else that you wanted to add in before we were done you know it's important to pay attention to all the phases of ensiling and i guess most of all it's on the safety so it's you know i, I grew up on a farm and we were like yeah yeah i got it you know i've <laughs> i grew up here i know how it goes you don't need to tell me but it's you know that's when it becomes really dangerous that complacency and we have so much you know it's is a short window, it's go time, and we have all these moving parts, the machinery, and people are putting long hours. It's always, you know, make sure that you're healthy, you're sleeping, you're hydrated, you're not like going day after day after day, and all the equipment, you know, they're calibrated, ready to go. You don't have like to stop in the middle of the harvest, then you're already like not happy, and you, you don't think about the safety. Just be safe. In the end of the day, that's what it matters, you know, people go home to their families and everybody it's still there again thank you dr schmidt and uh thanks hillary for uh special guest starring here on the podcast this week <laughs> and uh we wish everybody a safe and uh happy harvest out there thanks everybody thank, thank you, you. hey guys thanks for tuning in this week we really are trying to keep this podcast product and ad free However, if you have any questions about what you've been hearing, we strongly recommend reaching out to your nearest SureGain dealership. We have reps across Ontario, Canada, and the USA that would love to come to your farm and offer solutions to those problems that have been keeping you from achieving your goals. Please feel free to share this podcast with anyone that you think might benefit from this information or on your social media platform of choice. 
I also encourage you to tune into Keith Schweitzer's YouTube channel. We'll be releasing podcast episodes every other Thursday, and Keith will be releasing YouTube videos on the opposite weeks. We appreciate your support and I look forward to sharing with you real soon.